The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archives for November 14th, 2021. There's been a lot of news stories this week relating to espionage, such as the Biden administration blacklisting key companies involved in cyber espionage efforts, including the Israeli company NSO Group. The company allegedly supplied spyware that had been used by foreign governments to target phones of a variety of groups, such as political dissidents and human rights activists. For this week, I chose an episode from February 20th, 2012, in which Joel Brenner discusses his new book, America the Vulnerable, Inside the New Threat Matrix of Digital Espionage, Crime, and Warfare, where he outlines the problems posed by cyber vulnerabilities, cyber crime, and cyber espionage. Hello, and welcome to the Lawfare Podcast. Our subject today is a new book by Joel Brenner entitled America the Vulnerable, Inside the New Threat Matrix of Digital Espionage, Crime, and Warfare. Brenner served as the Inspector General of the National Security Agency from 2002 to 2006, and after that as the National Counterintelligence Executive in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence from 2006 to 2009. He sat down with Jack Goldsmith to discuss his new book this week. Because of a technical foul-up, the audio quality is a little fuzzy, for which we apologize. Joel, what is the book about? The book's about the way in which our embrace and dependence on wonderful electronic connectivity and ubiquitous connectivity has not only created vast improvements in productivity and generated huge pleasure for so many people, but has also turned us inside out electronically and made us electronically naked. And um, one of the things that I observed uh, as I was beginning the book or in the lead-up to the writing it was that there was a general attitude, especially during the Bush administration, that privacy was in the ditch and secrecy had just got really out of control. And it isn't true. They're both in the ditch. <laughs> and they're both in the ditch for the same set of technological and cultural reasons. Technological, because we all, governments, businesses, and 
individuals use the same technology to communicate, to generate, and store information, and they're terribly vulnerable. And culturally, because our, we have a proclivity um, in this country for openness and sharing, or to put it in a somewhat darker way, uh, I, th I think we are living in the most exhibitionist culture in the history of mankind. When, and, and when you combine that with vulnerable technology, you get electronic nakedness. Okay, so you say we're, we're electro electronically naked. Could you just march us through the different uh, aspects of who we are? So the private sector, you talk in the book about the private sector, individuals, um, firms, and the government. Yeah, I think that the public is fixed largely on their own problems of um, protecting their own privacy, sense of being exposed, controlling their family's privacy, their, uh, their children's um, in information about their children, what their children are exposed to, and so on. These are serious concerns, but the public has, I thought, missed the fact that the same set of issues exists at the corporate level with um, legitimate business information secrets, whether it's business plans or proprietary technology, and at the national level in terms of uh, national secrets. So that the, the your difficulty, my difficulty with controlling or our family's privacy, our, our employer's difficulty with keeping legitimate things secret, and the government's difficulties of doing the same thing are a lot more alike than people know. Right. So a lot of the talk about cybersecurity issues focuses on cyber war or um, what some people call cyber attacks. And uh, your book talks about those, um, but it seems that most of your book is focused on what in the jargon is called cyber exploitation or espionage or digital theft. And would you just say a few words about, about um, attacks versus exploitations and why you focus so much of your book on what are called exploitation or espionage and, what, and why that is, um, why you think that might be the core of the problem? Sure. Um, we, we use the word attacks in many different ways, and it's really worth pausing and examining that. Um, we use the word attacks sometimes just to describe the probing of a system. We use the word attacks to get into somebody else's system and take information out of it, which is what's technically known as exploitation. But we do refer to that as an attack, even though it's an espionage attack. And we use the word attacks in its military sense when we want to damage a network or corrupt or destroy either destroy the information in it or destroy the equipment that it's actually on. And they're really different things. Um, computer scientists and the people who operate networks don't really regard probes necessarily as an attack. Um, but it's legitimate to use the word in all these senses. But it's t if you're going to, you've got to really understand what the differences are. I've felt for some time that talk of war was out of control, that the public had become inured to war talk, both because we've seen the real results of war, of people coming back um, without limbs or terribly, you know, physically torn up from from the things that caused heat blast and fragmentation. Um, and also because we tend to use the war metaphor in this country rather indiscriminately as, as uh, you know, the war against this, that, or the other undesirable social condition. 
Uh, I, we're not at war right now. And I differ with some of my friends um, in, in that respect. But cyber war. You cyber mean. war, yeah. But we're not, at, we're not in cyber war. Uh, if we were, there'd be a lot of really nasty things going on, and, and we'd know it. And the lights would be going out, and uh, things would not be working. Um, and, and there would probably be, you know, kinetic stuff going on, too. The, the cyber might be the least important part of it. Uh, this isn't to say that the risk of, of cyber attack in the military sense isn't serious, but it's not happening, and we ought to understand that it's not happening. So that's why I've focused on the exploitation, because what I see is the slow hollowing out of, of American technological advantage now, to some extent, te you know, technology is like water. It seeks its own level. And sooner or later, technology becomes dispersed globally in ways that are good for, for humankind. Uh, and that's not a bad thing, even though it may mean that the enormous U.S. advantage in technology is diminished, which is a natural thing. But it, it's one thing for the technology to spread uh, in, a, in a natural way, and it's something else to have it just stolen. And that is a part, only a part, of the vast transfer of technology, often illegitimately, from west to east. It is going to affect the standard of living in this country and our children's standard of living, grandchildren's standard of living. And it's happening because we have put virtually everything on networks that are incredibly porous. So you say in the book that um, economic theft, theft of, of, of firm secrets, rises to the level of a national security problem. Is that? Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. The, the, since the fall of the Soviet Union, we saw a, a vast, militarily very powerful empire collapse in short order, I mean, it, the, the, the rot in that empire didn't happen suddenly. It happened over decades. But the, it was a, what appeared to be, from the outside, a sudden collapse without a shot being fired. Never happened before in the history of mankind. And the other countries, and particularly including the Chinese, saw that. And they realized that if you can't compete with the United States economically, you can't compete with us politically and militarily either. And at about the same time, we went through the first Gulf War. The Chinese saw that too, and they were horrified because they saw us utterly destroy in 100 hours a very well-equipped Iraqi army, equipped, by the way, with Chinese tanks and, and armor. And they, they took a deep breath, and they said, Boy, if the Americans can do that to the Iraqi army, maybe they could do it to the PLA, to the Chinese, the People's Liberation Army. And so the notion that war would be like the, the on the Maoist model of hundreds of thousands of Chinese people sweeping across the Yalu River against, you know, the MacArthur's forces, they realized that it was not going to happen. Never again. And that so that they, they drew a couple of lessons from that. One is they saw that the command and control that had enabled us to do what we did, 
to the Iraqis was electronic. And it was, it was a worldwide network. So that information coming to an American commander in Iraq might have gone through Australia to get there in seconds. And, and they saw that we'd spent $60 billion to do this. So they said, who else but the Americans have that kind of command and control? Who else but the Americans can spend $60 billion on, on, a, on war halfway around the world? And they realized two things. One is, again, you can't compete with us politically and militarily if you can't compete with us economically, because it was a, a, a huge economic engine that generated the $60 billion. And secondly, though they'd never be, they wouldn't be able to deal with us militarily directly for, for a generation at least, the way that American military advantage could be neutralized was to get into our command and control electronically. That meant that electronic espionage had two purposes now. One was to infect their military command and control, but the other was to help them catch up with us economically. And so we have seen, as a result of that perception, a flood tide of state-sponsored, directly and indirectly, state-sponsored economic espionage directed at the United States and its Western allies after purely economic secrets having nothing to do necessarily with political military objectives. So let me, let me push on that a little bit or elaborate, have you elaborate upon it. You, um, you were the, a top U.S. government counterintelligence official for four years uh, some of our readers might not know what counterintelligence is, so could you just briefly explain what counterintelligence is and briefly explain how network computers and information stored on those p computers changes the nature of counterintelligence? And then finally, you say that every firm, not just the government, but every firm or every major firm should be worried about counterintelligence. Could you tell us what you mean by that? Let, let me start with the what counterintelligence is all about, and then if I can remember the other questions. I'll, I'll follow that. <laughs> That's fine. Um, Counterintelligence is the effort to deal with what other foreign, what foreign intelligence services are trying to do to us, either to neutralize them or to mislead them. It is the classic spy versus spy game. It's fundamentally, most of the time, defensive, but it's not just a security business at all. And it's a common misperception. I put it this way, if there's a hole in your fence, the security boys want to plug that hole right away. Counterintelligence officials want to say, wait, wait a minute now, Let's, how'd that hole get there? Who put it there? Was somebody on the inside helping them to put it there? What's been going through it? Who's been going through it? What are they taking with them? And after we understand that, and we'll plug, either plug the hole, or maybe we'll give them a present that looks like something that they want to steal but is really misleading. That's the counterintelligence business. And it's, um, if intelligence gives you decision-making advantage, well, the intelligence gives you decision-making advantage only if it's good. Right. And, if, and so what, part of what counterintelligence does is, is to you know, corrupt the other guy's intelligence or tell you whether, help you determine whether your own intelligence is really valid. How has uh, the rise of dependence upon networked computer systems 
change the counterintelligence game. I imagine that in the year 2000, the top counterintelligence official in the United States government was a lot less worried about cybersecurity than you were when you had the job six years later. Maybe, maybe that's no, 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 it's right. Uh, the, the counterintelligence until a few years ago, I have to say, regrettably, had not really progressed beyond counter-espionage, which is the spy versus spy mole game, humans against humans. When I got to the counterintelligence job in 2006, my office was neither organized nor resourced to deal with anything but counter-espionage, nothing on electronic networks. I thought that was astounding. and was astounding. And um, whatever, you know, mistakes one makes in, 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 in uh, the course of running any organization, there are always some. Uh, that was one thing I, I'm sure I got right, and I really did fix that. Um, the, if you can penetrate somebody else's networks remotely, from the comfort of your office or an operating room half a world away in, in Xi'an or Shenzhen or somewhere in Siberia or Tehran. Maybe you don't need a spy. And the amount of information that you can exfiltrate that way is huge. So it's changed the vector of getting in the way of getting at information, and it's turned the spy game from a retail into a wholesale operation. Because you can take out, you know, on a thumb drive now, or a remote penetration, more information than all the human spies in history have ever carried out of, ever carried out of any country. Not just a bushel of it, but, you know, terabytes. You can now get a thumb drive that will hold the equivalent of many tens of millions of pages of documents dangling on the end of your keychain. Or you can exfiltrate it, you know, through a network. So this is this has really changed the business. So and just to bring it back to the private sector, you say in the book that every major firm, not just the government that needs that needs to do counterintelligence, but firms do as well. Is that a serious suggestion? Yeah, it is. Um, and, and and the more sophisticated firms know it. They are, um, they are penetrated. Um, you know, all the big chemical companies, all the big, I think the pharmaceutical companies, I know the um, defense, big defense intelligence integrators are penetrated, and they know it. Uh, now, if they're working for the Defense Department, then the department will help them. But if you... As I was explaining before, the problem isn't simply defense technologies, you know, aerospace and weaponry and so on. It's, it's pharmaceuticals, it's um, automobile systems, braking systems, catalytic converters, things that we do better than the Russians or the Chinese. Uh, General Motors battery technology. You know, General Motors I, used to be 20 years ahead of the Chinese. I'm not so sure that's true anymore as a result of espionage. Uh, Ford has lost braking technology to the Chinese. Um, some of my clients will tell me, because I represent a, a number of my firm, Cooley represents a lot of emerging companies, think, well, they're too small or they're too far from the defense business to be targets, and it's really wrong. Because no matter how obscure you think your products or technology may be, there's somebody in that same line of work in China, perhaps in Russia, perhaps
perhaps in Latin America or somewhere else, who's in that same line of work. And if they, if you're the market leader, they know about you, they have found you, or they will find you. The question then becomes, you know, are they targeting you? And 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 if and the answer might is po very possibly. You can't say yes to every company, but very but very possibly. And I've I've seen this now in the private sector in the year and a half I've been out of the government. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life. What would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all. 
for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So what we're talking about now is economic espionage or industrial espionage. Um, and one of the reasons why the distinction between espionage and exploitation on the one hand and attacks on the other have legal significance is because, among other things, um, under international law, there's no prohibition on espionage and uh, exploitation of this sort. Um, and so the nations that are doing this to us are basically doing so without violating international law. They may be violating our domestic laws, but they're not violating international law. Um, now, the U.S. government has a long announced policy of not engaging generally in economic espionage, We, or at least in not engaging in espionage of private firms to support kind of an industrial base in the country. We may, as I understand the policy as it's been announced, we may engage in espionage of private firms if there's a national security justification, but as a general matter, we don't. That's not true of our adversaries, and according to the most recent DNI report last year to Congress, 
it's not just our adversaries, it's our friends as well who are engaged in uh, economic espionage. Some of them. Some of them, yes. So my, my question is, can the United States, in the face of this onslaught of economic espionage that you describe in your book, can we continue to adhere to this policy of basically tying our hands? Is, it, is, it, is there a reason to think that one response to what's going on to us is to retaliate? Well, there are two good reasons for the policies that we have, Jack, and I don't see them changing anytime soon as a result. The first good reason is that the defense of the international legal regime on in, in intellectual property is a bedrock foundation of American policy. The economic espionage involves stealing other people's intellectual property. The defense of that legal regime is really important to us. It, it you know, it, it gets into questions of, of, of not just theft, but piracy as well. We're not likely to change that policy for any. That's a strategic policy, in order to get some kind of short-term tactical gain for the benefit of some company or other. Doing things that are tactically clever that are inconsistent with one's strategic objectives is not intelligent. Right. We're not going to do that. The second reason is, who are our biggest economic espionage threats? They are China and Russia. Russia is a country which, in spite of having an extraordinarily well-educated population uh, and a deep intellectual and cultural history, has never produced a single commercially viable computer chip. They don't have a lot to steal. The Chinese, same thing. They saw that the Japanese basically had a culture of, an economic culture of copying and good engineering, but were not innovators, and they desperately want to avoid that fate. But so far, they haven't. What do we want to steal from them? Last generation's tractor technology? Right. So that... For the time being, there's so much more to steal in the West, and in the United States in particular, that even if we were cynical about it, uh, there's not a great deal to be gained by this. Okay. So you don't, you don't anticipate that policy change? No, but I do see something interesting, because I think when private companies begin to ask counterintelligence-like questions, such as, Who's, who's, who could be targeting us? What are they doing? What do they want to know? What's the state of their technology, which would tell us a lot about what they, of ours, they might want to steal? Right now, American companies don't ask this question. These are CI questions, counterintelligence questions. Answering some of those can be done through open sources. Uh, others not. It would be very interesting to see the extent to which we begin, we as a government, to assist the private sector. I'm not predicting this. It's not policy. I don't speak for anybody right. anymore. I just see this as an interesting question on the horizon. It is an interesting question. Let's move on. Uh, I've got a few more questions. Let's move on and talk about cyber attacks just for a moment. Um, you discussed the possibility of crippling cyber attacks uh, on critical infrastructure. Can you just tell us a bit about how much you worry about that, how likely you think it is that there would be a major crippling attack on an electricity grid or a stock exchange or a banking system, um, how much should we be worried about uh, a devastating cyber attack? Well, let me say first of all that, and I've singled out the electric electricity grid as the principal 
there's the linchpin. Right. Both because of its vulnerabilities and because everything depends on there being juice, right? No juice, nothing, nothing works. There's no way that anybody, our most capable adversaries, could make this country go dark. That's science fiction. It's not science fiction to think that a region or a big metropolitan area could be made to go dark or to, or to have very little electricity, that some of these generators can not only be taken offline but could be physically destroyed. Now, that's not far-fetched. It's not to say it's easy to do. And there aren't very many actors who could do it. And they don't have an incentive to do it because we might do the same thing to them or retaliate with a missile down a smokestack. But it can be done, and it seems to me passing strange and deeply inconsistent with American thought ways not to defend oneself because you think your enemies or potential enemies probably won't attack you. That's really putting your fate into the hands of, of, of others whose intentions can change on a dime. And I, I think a country that does that is a country that's mortgaged, it's sold out its own future. So let me ask you what we should do about the threats you describe in your book. Um, ben Wittes in Lawfare gave a very positive review to the book. He said it was the best analysis of the cybersecurity problem and beautifully written on top of that, both of which are true. But he, he, one of his criticisms was, and I'm quoting here uh, from his review, Brenner is far stronger in diagnosing the problem than he is on proposing solutions to it. His final chapter has some useful policy suggestions, but it reads like a thin gruel given the magnitude of the problem he describes. Is that fair? And um, can you just describe for, for our listeners generally what you think should be done to the top priorities to deal with this threat? I identified the top priorities as three. Two of them short-term, one long-term. The first was the reliance, greater reliance on service providers to shut down botnets. We could do this. It wouldn't take um, any re-engineering of the Internet. It would drastically reduce the amount of criminal activity on our networks and um, make other kinds of activities easier to spot. We're not doing it. Let me just let's focus on that for a second. That I agree with you. That seems like an obvious and relatively easy first step. So what is the resistance? Is it price? Is it politics? What What is the resistance to well, taking steps to clean up botnets in the if United States? If you ask the ISP, sort of get somebody to talk to you off the record, they say privacy law. And, and and I think they're talking about Title 18, chapter, uh, Section 2511, which allows them, in protection of their own network, to intercept uh, bad traffic. But they take the position, plausibly, that it doesn't allow them to clean up their subscribers. Uh, networks, as if my network and my ISP's networks were different, right. were isolated spokes of a bicycle wheel. Once you're in a network, you're in a network. So I, but I don't really think that's the reason, that's the excuse. If it were the reason, ISP's would deal with that problem by contract. I mean, you know, they, you don't, 
negotiate with Verizon or AT&T or British Telecom or anybody else. You, you take what they offer on their contractual terms. Um, and a couple of ISPs are offering that now, uh, Cox and Comcast, I believe. But, but um, I think the reason the big market leaders don't do it is they're terribly afraid if they told you that you were part of a botnet, you'd unfairly blame them, and it would be unfair, and that you'd then switch to somebody else. They'd rather have you corrupted but on their network than clean and on somebody else's. But why, that, that explains why the carriers and the ISPs on their own don't take the steps. What is the hurdle to a government mandate? Um, well, on there are two. Which would, which would take care of the collective action. Yeah, sure, it sure would. It sure would. Um, you have one political view which just doesn't want any regulation of the private sector at all. It's chiefly on the Republican side of the aisle. Um, you have others on the left and the anarchist side of the aisle, let's say the libertarian side of the aisle more fairly, that um, feel that there's a potential there for the government to determine what is, is, is or is not a safe um, communication and that there's therefore the um, potential for police state you know, through this. I, I think neither one of those is right. Um, I don't propose having the government determine what is or is not safe communication because that's a bad idea. But I think the ISPs know yeah. and, and they ought to be pushed to do it. That's the first thing. I okay, to go to the other. The, other the second thing is the uh, isolation of the SCADA networks, the industrial control systems on the grid and certain selected critical technology, but particularly the grid. Say just a bit more for our listeners about what a SCADA system yeah. is. Um, we have systems that control machinery, both manufacturing machinery and ele electricity generators and so on that balance thousands of factors and inputs in, in milliseconds and make decisions faster and better than any person could possibly do it. And being computer-based, they don't get sleepy after lunch. They don't make mistakes. They're, they're, these are systems that control other systems. They're called industrial control systems. And when they, when that, there's a subspecies of those that are called SCADA systems that, that manage geographically dispersed elements of a system like like an electricity grid. <coughs> we have been connecting, in North America, the generators have been connecting those SCADA systems to the Internet with abandon. Those systems are mostly old. They're 20 and more years older, old. They um, do not have security built into them. They were not meant to be connected to a public grid. They were meant to be locked up behind lock and key. Um, we are now, in some extreme cases, you have, you have, um, have them being controlled by Bluetooth technology so the guy doesn't have to get out of the truck. This is folly, in my view, and we should be much tougher in the way we uh, deal with our critical infrastructure because it because if the grid goes down or if the transportation system goes down, everything else stops. The third thing I specified was a long-term um, issue that has to do with the nature of the net 
And why is it so porous? And why is it a masquerade ball? That can't be changed overnight. We're not going to start from scratch. It's a question of how to manage a migration to a more secure system. And I recommended a real intensification of publicly funded research into that problem set. I thought when I wrote the book that those were the three most important objectives that could realistically be achieved. I don't mean in a, in a perfect world, but realistically achieved. And I still think so. What Ben may have meant was that even if we did all those things, we're still going to be vulnerable. And if that's what he meant, he's right. But that's not because I was too timid in my um, suggestions. It's interesting to look at, the, at the, the bills on the Hill now, for example, including the one unveiled yesterday or the day before by a group of, a bipartisan group of senators that cuts across committee jurisdictions too. Uh, Lieberman and Collins were, were both instrumental in that. Um, they deal with two of the three things. Nobody's willing to deal with the ISPs right now, which I think is nuts, but that's Maybe, the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. But they um, have a, a critical infrastructure provision, which is really a serious piece of legislation, and it is quite clear that it is not going to allow the government to start setting standards, it's, but it's going to require performance-based standards to emerge from a from, from the industry. Uh, it's not going to allow duplicate regulation. It's a very sensible, well-thought-out bill. It may well be too strong to pass. I don't know. But we are on the verge of doing something useful for critical infrastructure. And the bill also would mandate more spending on the kind of research that I think would be wise. Let me ask, let me ask you a final question. Yeah. Um, and that has to do with secrecy. Um, and I think it's a paradox raised by your book. Uh, your book is about the many ways that technological changes are destroying traditional understandings of secrecy, both government secrecy and private secrecy. Um, and yet a lot of people think that there's still too much secrecy, and in fact that secrecy is one of the main hurdles to taking to addressing some of our cybersecurity problems. So I'm thinking of Senator Whitehouse last August. He gave a speech in the Senate where he said that the problem in this area is that the nature of our losses and the nature of our vulnerabilities are highly classified. And if the American people, and I've heard you make points like this before, I think, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. If the American people knew, if they, if they could read the classified information about what we're losing in the private and the public sector, that they would be appalled and they would be willing to take the serious steps politically and economically and so forth that it takes to defend ourselves. So Senator Whitehouse thought that, um, that there's too much secrecy surrounding the nature at least of the threats and our vulnerabilities and that less secrecy would be an important first step in dealing with the problem. And I'm wondering as a final question what you thought about that. Well, to some extent... That's a criticism of the classification system. And and I, I certainly agree that although occasionally we underclassify or I should say underprotect certain information, we very often overclassify information in a kind of gut reaction. If if you're in the intelligence community and you overclassify something, you're not gonna 
be criticized. If you underclassify, you make a mistake, you, you, you might be hung out to dry. And so there are lots of reasons why we overclassify, but we certainly do. But I don't think the broader point is right. I think what we've witnessed is a an unwillingness to want to accept information that's been readily available for a long time now, Jack. People are do not readily take in the significance of information that will make them drastically change the way they behave. That's what we're really dealing with here. I can think of some vulnerabilities that if the public understood them, there might be some heads really rolling. But um, and we could talk about that in a classified environment. <laughs> but by and large, we know what's, that stuff is being stolen. I, so I don't really think that the overclassification problem is getting in the way. It has nothing to do with the political unwillingness to deal with ISPs, for example. Right. I don't think it has anything to do with the unwillingness of um, to impose much more um, rationalized behavior on the executive branch to, to, to unify that out of the president's office. We're seeing resistance to that from both sides of the aisle for reasons that have nothing to do with secrecy. They have to do with turf. They have to do with power. Right. So I, I with respect to Senator Whitehouse, um, I think he's right about overclassification. I think he's wrong about the link between that problem and this one. Okay, that's great, Joel. Thank you very much. It's a terrific book, America the Vulnerable. It's a beautifully written book about one of the most important, if not the most important, national security problems that the country faces. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you, Jack. Thank you for listening to the Lawfare Podcast, a project of the Harvard Law School Brookings Project on Law and Security. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. Instead of spending your day in back-to-back meetings, try a new kind of FaceTime with Loom. You can use Loom to get a quick recording of your screen and webcam explaining what the team needs to know. It uploads while you record, so it's ready to share as soon as you are done. Just copy the link and paste it in Slack, Teams, or an email and get back to work. A three-minute video just might replace your next 30-minute meeting. Visit Loom.com to try Loom for free. That's Loom.com to try Loom for free today. Loom. See you at work. This podcast is supported by AT&T Active Armor. You've spent the day staring at your phone, waiting for that one call from the job, the hospital, or the family, and it finally rings. But guess who it is? A robot. Don't let fraud calls disappoint you. AT&T makes your security a top priority, helping block fraud calls with AT&T Active Armor. It's not complicated. AT&T Active Armor. 24-7 proactive network security, fraud call blocking, and spam notifications to help stop threats at no extra charge. Compatible device slash service required. Visit att.com slash activearmor for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.